Welcome to The Kenyanist, the podcast where we seek a deeper understanding of the social and political issues that Kenyans face. For International Podcast Day, we thought it would be great for all our listeners to get to know more about our host and executive producer, Kamau Wairuri. Aside, of course, from what you may have already seen on his LinkedIn bio. Also, since it's the last episode of this season, we'll reflect a little on the previous episodes and find out what to expect for season two. I'm Tevin Sudi, and without any further ado, welcome, Kamau. Thanks, Tevin. It feels interesting to be on the side of the guest while I'm used to being the host on this podcast. Looking forward to this chat. (laughs) All right, so let's get right into it. Can you tell us just a brief background of your childhood and stuff like that? Oh, interesting. Um, So I was born in Moranga in in a small market town called Mukoyo, which is close to Moranga Town, the headquarters of Moranga County. Then it was Moranga District. I went to a local primary school, Mjini Primary School, where I did, you know, all my primary school education, class one to class eight. After that, I left Moranga, came to Nairobi, went to Starehe for my high school education, did a bit of, as is common, you know, studied a bit of CPA after finishing from four, worked a little bit, and then went to the University of Nairobi to study for Bachelor of Arts in Political Science, Economics, and Sociology. As it goes, you know, a few years in the university, finished that, went into the world of work for a few years, and then eventually started pursuing postgraduate education in the UK, first with a master's degree from the University of Oxford, and recently now with um, a PhD from the University of Edinburgh, both of them in, in African studies. Before we even like proceed further, what kind of student do you think you are, even as especially during the early stages of your education what kind of what can you say about you <laughs> you know that's that's very interesting because i think about this a little bit um, i did very well in primary school so i was you know frequently top or very near the top of my of my entire class and i don't know like i started struggling with with science a little bit as we went to class seven class eight but otherwise on almost all the other subjects i was doing pretty well. So I found, you know, the education system or whatever the subjects we were doing, I found them quite easy to work through. To be honest, I worked a little bit hard, but it wasn't really that much effort. But I I did well in primary school. When I went to high school, it was a different story. And my memories of high school was just how incredibly bored I was throughout the four years. So in fact, I was most excited about the stuff that happened outside the classroom, you know, which was music. I was in the school choir all the way, you know, until when I was in form four. I was interested in um, other things like the President's Award Scheme, um, where we went for expeditions, we did fitness programs, we did community service. Those are the things that really excited me 
there was not really what was happening in the classroom. In fact, I think the only subjects that I really enjoyed were English, literature in particular, and geography. Anyway, I survived the high school experience, um, made very good friendships there, which you know have been sustained over the years. So I think I was basically a good student, but I don't think I'd want to go through my high school life again. I do remember being put on punishments a few times in high school, but otherwise I think, you know, well-behaved um, boy, a little bit focused, but quite bored. That's interesting. <laughs> and so after you finish high school, how do you decide that I'm going to study political science or how do you make that decision? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting how we come to these kinds of decisions in in our lives. Because in the place where I grew up, the only professionals were teachers, medical professionals, all of whom we called doctors. So whether it was a nurse or a clinical officer or a pharmacist, we called all of them doctory. And then there were bankers and civil servants. But I, I did not really understand what civil servants were, what they did. You know, I understood bank, I understood teaching, I understood, you know, the medical professionals. So I sort of went between those three options, because those were the only options that were really visible and available to me. I think it's when I was growing a little bit older and I got a lot more interested in politics, when I started learning that there was a, another profession, which was called lawyer, because as it turned out, quite a lot of people who are in politics were lawyers. So then there was, I remember there was someone else I met who had been a civil servant, a gentleman who then started talking to me about lawyers and how lawyers are the ones who are running the politics of the country. And I was quite interested in politics by this time, even though I didn't fully understand it, given that I come from Kiharu constituency, which at the time was Kenneth Matiba's constituency. And Matiba was one of these leaders of the, of the pro-democracy movement in the late 1980s and, and early 1990s. So we were all sort of taken in by this movement of demanding for a return to multi-party democracy. So politics was quite present in a lot of our minds. So I I started getting interested in, in this and I thought, mm, you know what, maybe if I go to the university, I could end up being a lawyer. I do remember a lot of conversations about Mwai Kibaki being to some, he was described as Kenya's best mathematician, to others, uh, best economist, because there was, in the language, there's no really, there was no way of distinguishing actually between economics and, um, and mathematics. So Kibaki was the other option now to look at and to think about, even though people from my area, we really did not like him. We saw him as a, as a guy who betrayed the vision. But this was still one of, the, one of the options. So when I was in high school, now these options became a little bit more accessible. I stuck with the idea of being a lawyer. And at this time, I had thought, because I remember reading in a newspaper somewhere that Moy had banned the study of political science in, in Kenyan universities. I didn't know that, you know, subsequently universities had just changed the name to government rather than political science. 
So I didn't, I didn't really think this was an option that was available. But then when I went to study CPA, one of the units then was economics. So this was my first encounter with economics, which I absolutely loved, right? So then I thought, I'm actually going to go to the university and study economics. You know, I went to the University of Nairobi. I applied. I was told, oh, economics is a Bachelor of Arts degree. For you to do this, you must start with three disciplines and then you can reduce to maybe two or one in subsequent years. So I asked what are the other options and surprise, surprise, amongst the options there was political science um, and sociology. So I chose it because it's something I was interested in, but I actually did not know really what it was. And then I went to my first lecture of political science. It was, you know, CPS 102. It was politics and government in Africa, taught by Professor Nyinguro. And by the end of that lecture, I remember knowing for sure that I wanted to become a political scientist. And that's how, you know, subsequently I stuck to that path, eventually actually dropping economics after the second year and just remaining with political science and, and sociology. Have you ever like had aspirations of any political seat at any point during all this time or anything? Are you thinking maybe at some point I can kind of try my luck and something like that? Yeah, so <laughs> that's uh, an interesting question and a difficult one. To, well, I mean, there could be multiple answers, but... Um, the most honest one of which is that if um, anyone who knows me really well knows that I have always harbored uh, political ambitions, but also that it's something I've struggled with and sort of um, assuming between being very certain that, you know, I'm running for office in the next election to being like, I will never run for um, any political position. I think. I find politics very, very exciting. I find it very interesting. But I think as I have moved a little bit further in terms of education, expertise, experience, and you know, including you know, having taught and engaged a lot of with, with politicians and civil servants, you know, NGO and, and non government organizations, people. I realize that I'm, I'm a lot more interested in policy questions than I am in the razzmatazz and the drama of political competition. I am interested in contributing to policy discussions and helping to move to advance certain causes, which in itself can actually be read as politics or engagement in politics without necessarily putting your name on the on the ballot. So for me, this question always, because I've noticed that tendency to swing between, uh, between the sides, that question will always remain open-ended with the possibility that maybe someday I'm gonna throw my hat in the, in the ring. I do think, however, that it, it's likely that I, I might have more impact on policy conversations 
um, you know, without necessarily being in an elected or elective position. So I'm open to continuing to serve um, the country in many different um, arena, rather than just, you know, getting that title of Muheshimiwa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I remember mm. you mentioned now doing African studies. Can you like define what that entails to us, like African studies? What's that? Okay. So because of the context of the podcast, I would um I'm gonna link African studies and international development because that that sort of forms a bit of the background to um, to the podcast. Um, so basically, African studies is an interdisciplinary, um, largely social science, especially here in the UK, largely social science oriented scholarship on things that are happening on the African continent. Now, I say link with international development because a lot of issues that we examine in African studies are also examined um, in international development as a discipline. And in fact, the University of Edinburgh, where I've just completed my PhD, um, these two come in the same um, in the same center. The Center for African Studies is also where the degrees in international development are located. The wonderful thing about African studies, which um, I found phenomenal when I when I did this degree was that it allowed me to study politics from a very African perspective. The focus on Africa meant that you are not, as a student of politics or society, you're not constantly being required to compare. African experiences with Western experiences, which was my experience with the study of political science at the undergraduate level, right? Because the theories and much of the scholarship is very Western oriented and the books, Introduction to Political Science, Introduction to Political Theory, Introduction to Political Economy are all primarily based on experiences in the West, in the US, in Canada, in, in, in Europe. So you end up with this knowledge and information about a subject, but that's not really properly linked to your lived experience, right? So to some extent, my degree was not really as useful as I would have wanted it to be in terms of enabling me to be a good analyst. Now, what the, the master's degree in African studies did was center the African experience. And this gave me a lot more analytical tools, so to speak, that I could now use to read our politics and be able to say, oh, I understand why this is happening. You know, of course, our analysis is not always 100%, but at least you, you can see that now you've got the language and the tools um, to do the analysis a little bit better, right? And the reason why this felt so powerful was because it was interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary, if you like, in that you are bringing, because it's African studies, it's not political science, it's not sociology, it's not anthropology. It means you bring all these disciplines um, together. 
So some of my teachers were anthropologists, others were historians, others were political scientists, others were sociologists, and but then focused on Africa, right? Um, and I found that to be very, um, to be very very helpful. And you know, then subsequently for the PhD, I went to study within an African studies department that brought in elements of international development, which. While it's focused, we know there's a lot of focus on Africa, but international development covers other developing regions like Asia, like Latin America, and, and so on. But then it introduces the policy dimension, right? So conversations about uh, children's rights will take a policy dimension at the global level and you know all the way to the local level. So I have found that education sort of quite expansive and um, also very useful in helping me deepen my understanding of some of the things and, and to make me feel a bit more confident in my ability to read situations um, and also to explain them you know um, to other people. After all this, after high school, after uni, after the master's and the PhD, and you've discovered yourself and now you know who you are. So why do you start a podcast? Why start a podcast? So I got introduced to the idea of podcasts in one of the classes I was teaching, actually. So the lecturer had assigned um, a podcast uh, episode as one of the things that student needed to do so I listened to it and I was I was fascinated by this discussion it was two scholars who held very different views being interviewed by someone else a development practitioner and you know debating this topic on corruption for uh, for about an hour I then went on, of course, in search of, of other podcasts. I discovered quite a number of them. One of the ones that I really like the most is um, the Ezra Klein show, where he discusses American politics, social and political issues quite well with experts. And then a friend of mine recommended New Books Network, which is basically academics interviewing other academics um, on books they have written. And at the same time, I had sort of started building a small audience on Instagram. I'd started doing some content creation, doing some videos. And it struck me that I was teaching uh, policy classes at Strathmore. And I could see this as a sort of a wider classroom where you know I could share some of the ideas that I have acquired either through my own research or through what I have been reading, you know, other people's publications and 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 so on. So I thought actually, why not just take the model of the first podcast I had listened to, which is bring the experts onto a panel, 
and then let's just talk about the stuff they are, they are doing and you know disseminate this information help them to disseminate the information a little bit um, wider so that anyone who needs to get a better view then has a place where they can come to and find you know in 40 minutes in one hour information about the politics so i was like you know what i'm gonna try and start a podcast now of course if you want to start up anything in this world the first thing you do is google you know and then you find everyone says oh so you want to start a podcast do not start a podcast because obviously everyone and their uncle has a podcast, so we don't need any more. But I'm like, no, but I think there's really something interesting here. And I think one of my colleagues had helped me rethink this idea that I need a big audience by saying, you know, if you have 30 people who are listening to you, that's actually important and it's useful. Like if you can do the work, do it. And I thought, you know, actually some of my classes are like 10 12 students I do not fail to go for the hour because the students are there's only 10 students you teach them anyway so I was like you know what um whatever the audience is going to be I know there will be a, a small audience that will be interested in some of this rather particular nerdy kind of topics but nonetheless so I went about learning about how to do a podcast so I watched a lot of YouTube videos um I didn't have money, so I wasn't going to buy any of those um, equipment that they were talking about. We were going through the pandemic. We were in a very strict lockdown, you know, but I realized you can actually do these things for free. You can use Zoom, which I used for, you know, the first few episodes, got people, people were interested to come and talk about their topics and one day I just launched a podcast, I announced it on Instagram and on Twitter. And I still remember that first episode within the first few days, I think it was maybe three or four days, had something like 79 downloads, which was way more than I had expected. So that's how we ended up uh, we ended up here with yeah. the Kenyanist. All right. So now yeah. that you've mentioned the title, how did you come up with the Kenyanist? So, yeah, I, I was thinking about usually, like, you know, we say the people who study Africa, African studies, Africanists, and the people who study Kenya, Kenyanists, right? And I was like, why not? It's going to be the Kenyanist. I am a Kenyanist. I study Kenyan politics and Kenyan, you know, um, social and political issues. And I want to bring other scholars who are studying Kenya. So I thought the Kenyanist was actually quite appropriate as a name for the podcast. It seems to work. So, you know, we are sticking with it. Yeah. And so these scholars that you bring to kind of discuss the different topics that you cover, you've had some pretty amazing people on the show. So how do you choose who comes to talk about a certain topic? How do you source for your guests? Yeah, that's a good question. Because <laughs> to be honest, in the beginning, I wasn't really sure how to go about it. But they are very many ways of finding this kind of content. So for someone like me, you know, who is privileged um, with having access to a library, you know, like the University of Edinburgh Library that has like 
so much material, you know, whether it's books and, you know, subscription to all these journals. But I also realized there are different ways of going about it. So, of course, there are people I know and, you know, you will reach out to them. But then I usually require something, an analysis that has been done that is written because then that is the basis of us having the conversation. It forms part of me preparing for the episodes. But then there are blogs that are quite useful for finding experts in particular fields. So for instance, the conversation, um, which is this hybrid kind of blog that publishes academic material, but for uh, for the wide audience. I usually read it. I read the Africa edition. And then I will see who the Kenyans you know, are or who's writing on Kenya. In particular, not to invite um, on the podcast people who are not Kenyans. I want the conversation to be more about Kenyan people talking to Kenyans about the things we are doing. This is not to say that I do not value work that is published by scholars from elsewhere. There's a lot of brilliant scholars who are examining some of this, these issues. But I also I want to give this platform mainly to Kenyan scholars um, to speak to a primarily a Kenyan audience about the issues that you know that they are studying. So that's how I find I find them. So sometimes now I think some scholars will reach out to me and be like, yo, did you see this paper that I have um, I've written, it would be interesting to um, to discuss it. Um, so I actually have a few now who've reached out. And then as I read, of course, you know the way it is in academia, you read one paper, they have cited other people, you're like, oh, it would be interesting to see that perspective. So that's how I actually find guests. I've been lucky in that quite a lot of them have responded positively. Some of them have said, I'm willing to come, but there's just no time. So we are, you know, some of them might be coming on in the second season. Some are just like, this is just not going to happen because the time, sometimes the time demands demands for academics are just crazy, especially when someone is in the middle of a big research project. So far, actually, no one has said no, which gives me a lot of confidence in that there's, there's material that we can actually keep on producing and sharing with um, with Kenyans so we can learn more about ourselves and our society and so that hopefully we can also do better. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so how has the experience been so far, kind of running the podcast? What has it taught you? What are some of the things you've learned along the way producing season one? Uh, first of all, that it is quite a lot of work. Um, and this season has been a lot of trial and error. Obviously, I am hopeless when it comes to technology and, you know, managing technological stuff. So, you know, I had to look for someone to help me with editing the first experience did not go very well with, you know, I wasn't being able to meet the deadlines we had set for producing episodes. And and there's something about consistency when you're doing something like this. Just being able to keep consistently doing the work means that, you know, you can actually do more because when you stop, it's very difficult to pick up the pieces again and, and, and restart because it takes quite a lot of effort. 
thankfully as time has has gone I, the team has improved you know we have a wonderful editor in, in Hope Nabalayo and and a good designer Mutugi Njeru who has been supporting me um, also with some of the social media and publicity stuff I'm glad now we are moving into a phase where you know yourself and uh, Lucas are also joining joining the team so I can see that it's going to be um, you know potentially much much better and much easier to produce as we go forward and so one of the key lessons there is that it's possible to do a podcast on your own. It's probably as if you have an idea, just get it started. But that if you are a busy scholar, academic, you know, and doing multiple things and who is also not able to really deal with technology and on their own in terms of editing and all that stuff, then it's useful to build a team. I think the second thing for this kind of podcast is that there has to be a lot of time that goes into preparation because I want people to come out of the episodes feeling that they have actually learned something, acquired new knowledge and not just banter. And because, which is not to say that banter is bad, there is place for that. But like for this podcast, I want someone to come out with you know something thought-provoking and to feel that you know something you did not know before so this means that because obviously i'm not an expert in everything it means that i have to spend quite a bit of time reading the work that these scholars are publishing thinking very carefully about what the questions that i need to ask are also thinking about what responses they might give based on what they have published but as you know people will sometimes have changed their minds about certain things or they may have learned something new in the ensuing period so it takes quite a lot of work to prepare for for the episode i think it helps a lot that i've spent many years now studying politics and development issues and public policy issues, which means that I'm able to sustain a conversation even where the conversation may go in a different direction from what I may have perhaps intended at the beginning of the of the conversation. I think the third thing is that, you know, social media is powerful in terms of finding an audience. I love that people actually listen to the podcast. I have had several people um, reaching out to me and saying, you know, they listen to it. And I really appreciate that. When I'm walking in Nairobi, people sometimes stop me and say, yo, I really enjoyed that episode on street naming, for instance, which makes me feel nice and feel that actually people are listening and also when I hear that some people are sharing it with others. I've also had requests from scholars from outside the country who are like, I really enjoyed listening to this. I would like to talk to that guest because I'm doing my PhD on this topic. And, you know, which, which I find lovely because it means, you know, that the podcast is, is by and large serving its purpose. So those are some of the key lessons um, I would say I've learned of uh, you know yeah. the period of producing this first season. Yeah, yeah. And off the top of your head, do you have like a favorite interview you've done, or one that after the interview are just like, wow, that's going to be a good episode? Like, do you have any such 
experiences over the past season? Um, so I think this is interesting because it's very difficult for me to choose which of this is my favorite baby. But mm-hmm. in a sense, what I can tell you is the difficulty of producing some of the episodes. Like the first one, you know, on the politics of street naming. This was really my very first experience at conducting a podcast interview. I think Melissa hadn't done any other interview before. You can imagine she decided she's going to do the interview in her office. But then there was noise in the background, which made me very anxious, you know, during the interview. There were questions that we we had to take and retake. As you can imagine, I am based in the UK. She's based in Nairobi at the time. Disparities in terms of uh, the internet connection and so on. But ultimately, we produced an episode which people have listened to and people have loved, right? So that gave me a lot of joy because it was very... Difficult and in a sense, it was it was gonna be the make or break episode as the first one because if it didn't do well, it would have completely dented. Um, I really enjoyed talking with Tom Boyer about the cost of politics in Kenya. I enjoyed the Sylvanas Wakesa's episode on, on on the foreign policy because you know he has a very good grasp and command of that area. I think the most perhaps impactful one for me was Ken Opalo's episode where we discussed about Harambe and CDF and ways of financing development, partly because he had all this rich data that I had not seen, um, you know, until he published his paper. I had not seen in my many years of studying politics. And it was an interesting episode to produce, actually, and, and, and to interview him. So, yeah. And so now, kind of taking a glance at the future, we are now wrapping up season one, and maybe in a few weeks we'll be heading into production of season two. Are there some issues that you would like to tackle that you've like flagged? Are there things that you would like to kind of discuss in season two? For sure, yes, of course. I mean, I have way more topics and ideas about what we can discuss beyond uh, what can fit in you know the seasons of the episodes which is what makes me think this this podcast may be going on for a while i think the one thing to note is that we now have a new government and the policy conversation is likely to take a slightly different turn. So one of the things that I will really be looking forward to discussing in the next season are issues related to the hustler economy, um, micro, small, and medium-sized enterprises especially. I have read some material that has been published on this before. Um, it would be nice to actually bring an expert um, in that field so that we can get you know, some of the parameters against which we will be assessing the performance of the, of the incoming government. Of course, there's a conversation about housing that has happened in the Uhuru Kenyatta regime, especially the last five years, and the big four, and which 
in some form or other has made it into the UDA, Kenya Kwanzaa Manifesto, uh, the idea of, of providing housing. And in light of the discussion with, um, with Pauline on forced evictions um, in this season, it would be again useful to go back to some of those conversations and think about what is it about housing that we get so wrong so often. Obviously, education is a big issue at the moment with this competence-based curriculum. I've been chatting with a few people. The problem has actually been that it's very difficult to find someone who takes a holistic policy level view of the system, which comes at a cost, right? Because if there are people who look at different elements, but we need to be able to see the whole thing broadly and talk about it and see whether we're actually heading in the right direction. We need some nuanced conversation about not just whether we should move from 844 to CBC, but also if we are actually going to stick with moving to CBC, then what kind of, of system do we want to actually um, build? I think security is also another area, as you as you'll have seen with um, the rise in the incidence of banditry in some some parts of Kenya, which seems you know to somewhat be unresolved. So I think there's there are quite a number of topics that are contemporary, but also there are timeless discussions, like questions of governance. So you know we need to think about the attempt to build to change the constitution. Um, in the last years of Uhuru Kenyatta's regime with the BBI initiative, vis-a-vis um, -vis the efforts of the new regime now to create the position of a prime minister to keep the, potentially keep the positions of the chief administrative secretaries, the debates that we are starting to hear now about bring more money to the counties, the debates that will undoubtedly emerge when it comes time to review the constituency boundaries. So obviously those are some timeless conversations that need to be had. And one of the things that I try to do on the podcast is because I want it to be a learning platform rather than you know, a location for shouting matches. So we tend to avoid the topics while they are still hot, because then that is just likely to feed into the divisions but actually wait and then look at the policy implications and the policy conversation. Yeah. Oh, that sounds really interesting. Season two is already looking to be bigger than season one. And so finally... Hopefully, we... hopefully it works well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, as we conclude, a fun question. If you would have anyone, a dream guest on the podcast, let your mind run wild, who would that be? Um... So, so far, the podcast has really focused on examining topics that are discussed by scholars. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I will try and make this dream a reality in this second season, but I can't promise that it will happen, is I also want to start looking at or examining issues from the perspective of the practitioners, mm -hmm. right? So, for instance, PLO Lumumba was the boss of the Ethics and Anti-Corruption Commission. Mm -hmm. I think it would be lovely to have someone like PLO on the podcast 
discussing not just the ideas of how we can fight corruption and questions of integrity, but also getting into the nitty gritties of like, what actually is the experience um, of running the agency that is charged with, with some of these challenges. So I want to bring some of those, you know, recognized senior, you know, Kenyan public figures like him, um, possibly my good friend David Ndii, people like Kidu Moigai. I would love, 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 love to have both Professor Kivuda Kibwana and Professor Nyangnyongo, because they occupy an interesting space in my memory of politics as a child, because they were public figures when I was when I was growing up. And I, I have seen them through and through, and to see their transition from, you know, being scholars to being protesters on the streets to being politicians to being cabinet ministers, to being governors in, in the counties. And I think there's a wealth of knowledge there that might be very interesting to share more broadly with, you know, with the audience of Kenyanists. So keeping our fingers crossed and uh, hoping that at least some of this um, will come true. Yeah, definitely, definitely. We'll try and make some of them come true. So stay tuned for season two. Kamal, thank you so much for allowing us to have this conversation, for sparing time for us to kind of have this conversation. I'm positive that our audience now knows you a bit better, knows where you're coming from, knows why you started the podcast, knows that you are a good student, although you were bored in high school, <laughs> knows how you decided to enter this field yeah. and everything. And so yeah. that has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been interesting being on the side of uh, answering the questions and <laughs> looking forward to a wonderful season two. Thank you to all our team behind the scenes who make the podcast possible and to you for all the support on season one of the Kenyanist podcast. You can follow us on social media platforms at The Kenyanist and you can listen to all our episodes on www.podpage.com or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.